One of my favorite novels is Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And it's not often a favorite. I think statistically you may not have probably read it. Uh, it's actually terrible. Uh, it's the story, and I'm just going to, spoiler, spoiler alert, I'm giving the whole thing away right now. If you don't want to know, get out. Now's your chance. Uh, it's not as uplifting as most Russian literature. That's a joke. Okay. So uh, this guy, the main character, Raskolnikov, in the story, he's the single guy living in this apartment building, and he murders this lady in his apartment building, this old lady who has nobody to look after, and he murders her. Okay, so very, it's, there's a whole lot of details in it. But basically, he gets away with the murder at the beginning of the book. That's what happens. He gets away with it. And nobody knows. And the rest of the story of the, of the novel is the story of this guy basically being tortured by his inner guilt over the fact that he has murdered this lady. And so everywhere he looks, he sees a potential informant to the police. I know his heartbeat is driving him crazy because his heartbeat is too loud. And maybe they're going to hear his heartbeat is so loud, they're going to know that he's trying to hide something. And every time he walks on the street, he walks by the police station or sees a police officer, he's freaking out. And it just gets worse and worse and worse along the whole story. I mean, it's absolutely torturous, okay? So you're thinking, Pastor Ryan, what's going on? Why do you like this literature? Well, the whole point of the story, the point of the novel, is that the punishment for this murder wasn't necessarily in conviction and doing time in jail. The punishment was the guilt and this guy trying to hide his guilt. And it tortured him, okay? Now, here's the interesting thing that happens at the end. So, by the end of the story, he can't take it anymore. He absolutely can't take it. And so, he goes and he confesses to this murder, upon which he is taken into custody and he's sent off to jail in Siberia. He's sent off to jail and what's his demeanor? He's smiling. There's a sophisticated point there. That he was tortured by his guilt that he had hidden, right? That he was holding on to internally. And yet when he finally actually confessed to what he had done, only then could he find joy and peace. Even though he was being taken off to prison. There's something to it. And it's a sophisticated novel. There's a lot going on. But I think there's something to the idea that if we refuse to confess our sin, we are in trouble. That's really one of the main themes of Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a psalm where David rejoices over confession and the benefits that come to him from confessing his sin. Of course, if we think about the life of David, we immediately are, are thinking of those big failures in his life. The setup and murder of Uriah the Hittite and his affair with his wife, it's all bad. That's really bad stuff, heinous stuff. And yet David did confess that sin after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. We don't know if this psalm was written before or after that. I think it's likely written after that, but we can't prove that. But in this psalm, he talks about the effect of, of hiding your sin or concealing your sin and then the effect of confessing your sin to the Lord. I wonder... When was the last time you confessed specific sin to the Lord in prayer? We're busy people. We live busy lives, lives of distraction. So many screens are available to us. It's not often that we take time just to stop and to pursue the Lord in prayer. And when we do that, it's even more rare that we might take time to specifically pray to the Lord and ask for forgiveness for specific sins that we have committed Attitudes that we have harbored, ways that we have spoken that are inappropriate and not God-glorifying, things that we have done. We know that sin is a universal struggle. 
We see it. And yet many Christians seldom, if ever, confess their sin to the Lord. Can I just encourage you this morning that that's not right? That it's not okay. It's not okay for us to say, oh yeah, I believe that I'm a sinner and I believe that I'm saved by by Christ. And yet to never go to the Lord articulating your need for forgiveness, it's it's an area of hypocrisy. It's an inconsistency. And we shouldn't be okay with it. Now when we talk about confessing sin in Psalm 32, we're talking about confessing sin to the Lord. Not confessing sin to a mediator through the church through a pastor or someone else. We're talking about going to the Lord directly in prayer. And what do we find in Psalm 32? For those who are brave enough to confess their sin, for those who will risk going to the Lord and acknowledging their wrong, what will they find? They will find a beautiful confirmation of the gospel. But we also find in Psalm 32 is a warning to those of us who are being stubborn and refusing to confess our sin. So let's walk through this psalm together. We'll see how the, the, the psalmist, how David unpacks these ideas and how it is actually a psalm of worship talking about confession and not hiding our sins. So we're picking it up there at Psalm 32 and verse 1. You'll notice in the prescript or the little title there in your psalm, it says of David, and it's called a maskil or a maskil. This is a technical term. We don't know exactly what it means, although it's related to a Hebrew verb used later in the psalm that might mean well-formed or, uh, you know, a a wisdom psalm, something like that. We're not totally sure, um, so we won't make a huge deal of it. We move on, though, to verse 1, and verses 1 and 2, David introduces this theme of the joy of forgiveness. Some translations say blessed is, how blessed is. The CSB has how joyful is. I'll talk about that more in a moment, but let's just read here from the CSB. He says, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. There are two beautiful word pictures here to talk about forgiveness. David says, first of all, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Literally carried away is the picture. My sin has been taken away. Secondly, he talks about blessed is the one or how joyful is the one whose sin is covered. That's an important term in the Old Testament to talk about forgiveness, that our, our sin is covered before the Lord. The, the debt is taken care of. We are protected from the wrath of God by virtue of his graciousness. And so the proclamation is blessed is or how joyful is. Now, the, the, the detail here about how joyful or blessed relates specifically to the idea that we have received this status from the Lord. It is conferred upon us. This is not a state that you could earn It's not something that you can conjure up. It's not circumstantially based, but rather David says here how joyful, how happy, how blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He says, I know a thing or two about being in sin. I know a thing or two about failing. But let me just tell you that what is glorious is the state of joy and blessing that comes from knowing your sin is forgiven and that your debt is covered. See, David, he starts off the psalm with a tone of worship, praising God for the gift of forgiven sin. So again, how joyful or blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He goes on, how joyful, how blessed is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit 
is no deceit. Let's take those two uh, parts of verse 2. So he says, How joyful is the person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity. This is uh, accounting terminology, right? And so, you know, lest we ruin our worship service with accounting terminology, we're just going to talk it through, okay? Uh, forgive me, accountants who are in the room, because God knows clean books are a blessing, okay? So that's a whole other discussion. But here's the reality. He says this accounting term proves a point for us, that when we sin, it could and should be listed in our account with the Lord as a wrong, as a debt, right? It puts us in the red, And yet here he says, how joyful or how blessed is the person whom the Lord does not charge with their iniquity. He takes our sin and rather than putting it down in the book and and having it be against us, he has removed it from us. It's erased or never entered into the ledger. How blessed, how joyful is that person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity. It sounds good because it is good. It's not you know, hard to imagine why that person would be joyful after this debt has been removed from their account. But he goes on at the end of verse 2, again, talking about this person who has been blessed, received this status of, of joy with the removal of sin. How joyful is a person in whose spirit is no deceit. And while certainly that's true generically, when we are not deceitful people, that joy is, is a, a byproduct of that, I think specifically here what he's talking about is the person in whose spirit is no deceit regarding their own sin. And that is made abundantly clear by the next verse in the next section in the psalm where he talks about the danger of hiding sin. More on that in just a moment. But if we pause here in these first two verses, we learn a basic idea, a premise that's central to Christianity. It's that forgiveness is a blessing that results from honest confession. Forgiveness is a blessing that results from honest confession. The person in whose spirit is no deceit about their sin is willing to disclose their sin. And as they disclose their sin, they receive the blessing of forgiveness, the joyful status of being forgiven, of their sin being carried away, right? Of it being covered, of that ledger being clean. Forgiveness is a blessing conferred to us that results from honest confession. We're talking about true honesty here right? Actually coming clean with all of it. And this is the interesting, uh, the interesting kind of discussion point as we get into the psalm. The question is, why would we conceal sin from the Lord? Because if we have our theological, you know, thinking caps on, we might remember that God is omniscient, which is a fancy way of saying he knows everything all the time. So just, you know, for, you know, the sake of clarity this morning, that means that God knows all of our sin. So for us to hide it from him is a little bit ridiculous. Can I get an amen? It's like when you come home and you find your toddler, you know, and they've got like marker all over their face and marker all over the wall and they're holding the marker and they're like, not me, I didn't do it. You know, you're like, okay, well, not that my kids ever did that. Uh, Or still do. Why do we conceal our sin? Well, we conceal our sin because of shame. What will God think, we wonder. And we think that because we wonder, what would others think if they knew? Right? What would I think if I knew somebody who had this struggle? And so we hide it. We conceal sin because of guilt. We know we've done wrong, and we doubt 
that God's goodness and his love will win the day. We conceal sin because of fear. Maybe not fear of judgment from God, but sometimes that's it, fear of judgment from God, but sometimes it's just fear of consequences, where if this sin comes to light, if I confess it, then it's going to have a domino effect. It's going to wreak some havoc. There's going to be some work to be done. While David's not talking about specifically confessing our sin to others, he's talking about confessing your sin to the Lord, a natural and necessary next step once you've confessed your sin to the Lord is you also confess it to those whom you've wronged. And so that is messy work, right? It's hard work. And for those reasons and many others, we conceal our sin. We're tempted to do that. But verses 1 and 2 is an argument. Listen, how joyful, how blessed is the person who just comes clean, who just says, this is where I failed, Lord. And what do they receive when they come clean to the Lord? They receive forgiveness. How many different ways can he say it? Transgression is forgiven. Sin is covered. The Lord does not charge with iniquity. It gives you three beautiful pictures there of forgiveness. It's carried away. It's covered. It's removed from the ledger. We are actually forgiven by virtue of faith in our great God. And yet we're tempted to conceal our sin. We're tempted to pretend it's not there. We're tempted to lie about it. The beautiful joy, state of blessing that's pictured in verses 1 and 2, it is conditioned, right, on confession of sin. Because when we don't confess our sin, we create a major problem. Watch verses 3 and 4. He's talked about how joyful is this person who's forgiven. But notice verse 3 and 4. When I kept silent, and he means kept silent about my sin, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. There's a a, a word picture here, a contrast. He kept silent about his sin, pretending it wasn't there. But when he kept silent, what's he doing? Now he's groaning. He's groaning because his bones become brittle. The picture here is one of, of suffering, Right? And whether that's a metaphor for spiritual suffering, like his bones being brittle like that, or whether it's literally physical suffering, either way, the point is clear. When I, con- when I refuse to confess my sin, bad things happen to me. It's an internal struggle, and it's an internal poison. Verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. You see, David here acknowledges a a stark contrast between verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. And you have to get this contrast to get the psalm. So verses 1 and 2, how joyful or blessed is the person whose sin is forgiven. You're like, sign me up for that. Like, I want to be in that column. That's that's the group I want to be in. But then he says, but when I was silent about my sin, my bones hurt. And and I just groaned. And, and I, I was wasting away like on a hot summer day or I'd being stuck outside without water. Like I, I, the heat was just beating on me. And he acknowledges that, that that suffering, that internal suffering, whether it's physical and spiritual, right, or, or just the spiritual, either way, he says that suffering is a function of God's hand, he says, being heavy on me. And why was God's hand heavy on David? Because God loves him. And God wasn't content to leave him in a state of unconfessed sin. And so God put his hand on David and actually causes that discomfort. 
from the unconfessed sin, that groaning. The Lord says, I, I, I'm trying to get you to the place, David, where you, where you will own your sin, where you will confess it to me and acknowledge what you have done that is wrong. And so he puts his hand on David, is the picture, right? And presses. And so, the, so he, David says, I suffered. The main idea here is so clear. Secret sin destroys us. But confessed sin brings joy. That's the contrast in the psalm. Secret sin destroys us. It's a poison. It'll eat you from the inside out. But confessed sin brings joy. It's very likely this morning that there are some gathered here for whom this psalm resonates very, very much. Because maybe right now, you have secret sin in your life. Sin that you have not confessed to the Lord. And by extension, then you have not confessed to those whom you've wronged. And if you're here and you're in that state, maybe you can identify with the suffering that David describes. The crime and punishment of sin being unconfessed and the suffering that goes along with that. But you need to know this morning that the message of Psalm 32 is that you don't have to stay there. That there is relief from that burden. There is joy available. And just as much as we have to learn that secret sin destroys, again from the inside out, we also have to realize that confessed sin, when we come clean with it before the Lord and then before others, right? When we confess our sin, what, what do we find? We find joy and peace and provision, a state of blessing, not a state of condemnation. Unconfessed sin is a prison. It is a poison. It does eat at us from the inside out. It does confine us, right? And yet by God's grace, he, he will put his hand on you and actually give you sleepless nights and give you frustrated circumstances. And he, he will make you feel upset to bring you to the place where you're finally ready to confess your sin before him. His hand in that circumstance is a blessing. Even though it may not be fun, it's a blessing because he loves us enough to rescue us. Unconfessed sin does cause suffering. I think physical is included here, but at least spiritual for sure. We see, of course, that unconfessed sin displeases the Lord. He puts his hand on us because it's not right, and we know it's not right. Unconfessed sin is also based on a lie. What's the lie in unconfessed sin? The lie is, if I ignore it, maybe it'll go away. Has that ever worked? For anyone? Ever? It doesn't work. You know, your check engine light comes on. If I ignore it, maybe it'll go away. No. No, the light comes on for a reason. You need help. Right? If we don't, if we don't confess our sin, we're lying to ourselves. Or we're believing a lie told to us by the deceiver. Where he says, oh, did God really say that was wrong? Nah. Not really. Not that big of a deal unconfessed sin decreases our sensitivity to sin. And ultimately, if we don't ever confess our sin, not only is that a sign of unbelief, it leads to absolute disaster. I'll give you one story about this. It's an extreme example to be sure, but it just proves the point. Uh, this was uh, someone that I knew uh, through a ministry associate when I was graduating from high school. 
and I was in, in college preparing for ministry, and this, this person had been in youth ministry. But while they had been in college, they had had an addiction to pornography, and they had been regularly involved in viewing pornography and, and that sinful pursuit, and they never disclosed it to the Lord for sure. They certainly didn't disclose it to anybody else. Uh, refused to ask for help. And so that, the problem got worse. They didn't tell anybody. Eventually, that person gets into youth ministry, and uh, then that addiction to pornography became uh, an, uh, a new outlet arose for that sin with uh, flirtations with teenage high school girls. And then eventually, that leads to unfaithfulness with one of these teenage girls. This individual was married, had uh, five children. And uh, ultimately, it, it was found out that, that this affair had happened. The person was then under legal threat because the, the girl with whom he had committed the affair was underage. And then he was convicted. Um, his, his wife left him, separated from him. He went to prison. And to this day, I don't know if he ever has seen his children again. And that's a terrible story. But I just wanted to share it with you to underline the point that it all started with unconfessed sin. Right? Not being willing to own sin and confess it for what it is, it just causes more and more damage. And that accelerates the cycle of sin and desensitizes us to the sin. And we argue, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's not really sin. It's really okay. It's not going to really hurt anybody. It's a private thing. And then, then we see, of course, the destructive path that it can take. Secret sin destroys, but confessed sin brings joy. David wants to argue in the psalm. He wants to help those who recite the psalm and who sing it. He wants to help us by pointing us to the Lord. Rather than when suffering under unconfessed sin, he wants us in that state of blessing. So, so watch verse 5. He describes what happened, the difference, the turn. He had not confessed his sin. He was suffering. The Lord's hand was heavy on him. But then in verse 5, David proclaims, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah, that's a, that's a term talks about pausing to just consider the point there. What a wonderful, what a wonderful verse. You see, our hope, our hope, don't miss it, right? Is not in that somehow we can live our lives in such a way that we never have sin to confess. That I could just perform well enough. And for those of us that have the blessing of being raised in a Christian family, sometimes that's the burden that falls to us. We think, oh, I've got to perform. And I've got to just step in all the right places and not say the wrong words and not do this and not do that. And we have this performance mentality. And we think God's character, his, his blessing on my life is conditioned on not having bad things to confess. When actually the, the way it works is not that we perfectly obey and then therefore we receive God's blessing. But actually, when we acknowledge our sins and our failures, we are gifted this blessed status of forgiveness. Again, note verse 5. What, what can be done? Well, what can be done is I acknowledged my sin to you, David says. Secondly, I did not conceal my iniquity. It's the same thing. I uncovered my sin. There's a play on words here. When David uncovers his sin, the Lord covers it. That's the, it's the same verb. Verse 1 and verse 5. When David uncovers his sin, and he says, here it is, Lord. This is how I failed. The Lord says, I've got you. And he covers it. <laughs> the lie, of course, is, oh, I need to keep it covered. I need to keep it hidden. 
But when David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, the result is you forgave the guilt of my sin. We fear condemnation, perhaps, but what do we find? Forgiveness, right? We fear anger. What do we find? Love and grace. David argues, he says, confess, confess your sins. Why? Because God forgives. Because God forgives. This is a beautiful expression of the gospel tucked away here in the Old Testament. It just reminds us that it's the same author from the Old and New Testament, right? That this is one story. But the message is clear. Confess your sin, not because you have to, in order to earn God's favor, but because God loves you and is inclined to forgive you. Confess your sin because he forgives. There will be all these arguments as to why you shouldn't confess your sin. All these these lies, right? Oh, you were justified in it. Is it really sin? I don't even know, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, it'll just be fine. It's not that big of a deal. Or if you confess it, oh, people find out they're going to turn from you. They're going to turn on you. You know, God's going to judge you. But at the end of the day, David says, the best day was the day I just uncovered it all. And when I did that, what did I find? I found God gracious and inclined to forgive me. If you're here this morning and you know you have unconfessed sin in your life, I want to call you to confess your sin. But I want to be really clear that that calling is based on the grace of God. It's not so you can perform an act to earn his favor. It's because God has already shown us his favor. Watch verse 6 and verse 7. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. I, I, I like that. It's all the, all the saints, right? All God's people come to the Lord immediately in prayer, urgently in prayer. It's hard to translate, but get there. Get there quickly. Why? Well, when great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. The one who has sought refuge in the Lord will be protected is the idea. So the image now is of a flood coming down. And then it's like, what, what happens with the flood? The flood is coming. The flood of what? The flood of judgment and condemnation for my sin. And then what happens? God protects that person from that raging flood of condemnation. Verse 7, you are my hiding place, David says. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. See, now we've gone from moaning and groaning because our bones are brittle, uh, all that, right? Because we haven't confessed our sin and we're suffering. Now we've gone to joyful shouts of deliverance, right? Are surrounding me. And instead of being exposed as we feel we might be if we come clean and we open up about our sin, right? David says, no, actually, what did I find? I found protection. When I uncovered my sin, it was covered. And what did I find? I found that that the place to be for protection is in the arms of our Father. You are my hiding place, David says. Don't hide your sin from him. Expose your sin. Be honest about it to the Lord. And what do you find in the Lord? You find protection. We find a safe refuge. And we find joy and deliverance. Confess your sin because God forgives of course, as we read on in the Bible, we find out how God forgives. 
We find out in Romans 3 that for sins committed before the Messiah, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. God is patient. He holds on to those sins from before and waited until Jesus died on the cross. And on the cross, the Father pours out his wrath against all of those sins of those who came before Christ who had trusted him. And of course, after the cross, we're forgiven by that same mechanism, by looking to the Messiah by faith. That's why we find in the rest of the Bible clear statements of forgiveness. Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you need not fear the flood of condemnation. You are protected from the wrath of God by the grace of God. That's the gospel. We find this beautiful statement of confession of sin in 1 John 1, which flows right out, I think, of Psalm 32. 1 John 1, 8 talks about how if we say there is no sin in us, we are a liar. So if you're going to deny that you struggle with sin, no, false, wrong, right? But in 1 John 1, the Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. What a beautiful statement. That the secret to finding forgiveness and peace and joy, that that secret is to confess your sin. Again, the idea there is confession to the Lord. To go to the Lord in prayer, to own your sin. To call it what it is and to seek his mercy. Confess your sin because God forgives. Why does God forgive? Because Jesus died in your place and rose from the dead. This is the gospel. And we do find it here in Psalm 32. I don't know if you recall the story of the Pilgrim's Progress by my friend John Bunyan, written in the 1600s. Uh, John Bunyan writes this story, this uh, metaphor for the Christian life. And early on, uh, Christian, uh, you know, hears the gospel and responds. But in those first stages, he's still carrying on his back the burden of his sin. And it's pictured as this huge backpack, this weight. And he's carrying it around. You can just picture him in the story, just kind of struggling along with this pack. But in, in stage three, chapter three, Christian comes to this place in the story where there's a hill, there's a cross, and there's a tomb. And the tomb is empty. It's open, right? As Christian comes to this place, what happens? Well, the burden breaks off of his back, and it rolls down the hill, and it's swallowed up in the tomb. It's just a beautiful picture of forgiveness, right? His burden was relieved by faith in Jesus. But note what Bunyan says. He's, this is what he says Christian said in that moment. Christian said, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then Bunyan notes this. It says, then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He stood there for a minute and he just looked and he, and he thought, this is crazy. That the sight of a cross, a sign of a place of suffering, a place of execution, that that would be the sight that brings me comfort. Why is it a wonder? Because it's where the mercy of God is poured out for us. We confess our sin because God forgives. That's why we should. And that's the main argument from Psalm 32. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling with unconfessed sin, Okay, know that that secret sin will destroy you, but confess sin brings joy. And why should we confess? Because God forgives. Why don't we confess? 
Well, there's a lot of reasons, but maybe one primary one. Watch verse 8 and verse 9 in the psalm. David goes on. He says, I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Now, before you get weirded out about David having his eye on you, okay, what's he talking about, okay? He's not talking about a ring camera that's installed, okay? He's spying on you. This is an expression in the Old Testament that talks about intimate knowledge. So he's saying, listen, I get it. Let me give you some intimate counsel. Let, Let me come clean with you here and just talk to you, like just, you know, on a heart level. Like, what's, what, what's the need here? What's my problem? He says, let me instruct you and show you the way to go. Verse 9, do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. Pause. David's big wisdom point here, don't be a mule. Don't be a mule. I've got t-shirts made up with that on it that are out there and they're available for purchase. They are not. Okay. What's he talking about? He's talking about a stubborn animal. Okay. A mule here. You know, the idea, the primary character trait that's in view is the stubbornness of a mule. A horse, when it doesn't want to do what you want it to do, good luck with that. Getting that horse to do what, what you want it to do. Unless you put that bit and bridle in its mouth. And then by virtue of that bit and bridle, you can control, you can cause that that animal that is strong and proud and wants to do something else, you can bring it into conformity, right? But here David says, I'm going to tell you how to get here, okay? I'm going to instruct you. If you're not confessing your sin, I'm going to give you help on how to get here. Don't be a mule without understanding. The mule who doesn't understand what's going on and has to be forced into submission. David says, don't, don't be a mule. Don't be the one who has to have the bit and bridle put in their mouth to bring them to a place of submission. Just be smart. Humble yourself and confess your sin. The enemy here is pride. Pride prevents confession. Pride prevents repentance. Pride says, I haven't sinned, when God's word says clearly we have. Pride says, I have an excuse. When even though there are complicating circumstances that we face in our lives, you are not excused for your sin. Pride says, well, they won't forgive me, so they can ask for forgiveness first. Let them come around and then I'll acknowledge my wrongdoing. That is stubborn, mule-like pride. It's without understanding because it puts me at the center of the universe rather than the glory of our great God. David says, let me just, let me just you know, shoot straight with you. Don't be a mule without understanding that has to be forced into submission. Just confess your sin. Confess your sin to the Lord. Well, but what if people don't respond the way God does? Okay. What if it makes a big mess that I have to clean up? Okay. What if, what if I don't ever get what's, what's owed to me by them? Okay. How joyful, how blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. This is not, I, conf- I confess my sin when it's convenient. I confess my sin when it's easy. I confess my sin when I'm guaranteed anonymity and no one else will know. Pride prevents confession. And therefore, pride is the obstacle to experiencing the joy and peace that comes from forgiveness. I've got to tell you, 
if you've never trusted in Christ, this is the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue here is pride. That you have not acknowledged your need for a Savior. And God does oppose the proud. He absolutely does. But don't forget that God gives grace to the humble. And this psalm is meant to be a beautiful picture of his grace offered to us in forgiveness. The only condition is that we humble ourselves and acknowledge our need. Maybe you're here and you've never trusted Christ. I would encourage you to consider whether or not you are proud in the sight of God. Consider what it would look like for you to humble yourself and to acknowledge, to say, Lord, I have sinned against you. And turn to God in confession of sin. When you do, what will you find? You won't find a, and I told you so. You won't find, okay, yeah, but here's some extra judgment for you for taking so long. You will find that God forgives sinners. That's what you'll find. You'll find grace and love. And you can stand there with Christian and look at that cross and just wonder at how God funnels his grace through that cross. Pride prevents confession and repentance. But when we confess, well, we're blessed. Watch verse 10 and 11 as he concludes the psalm. Many pains come to the wicked, David says, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Just pause there, verse 10. Again, we have another contrast. If you're going to be stubborn like a mule, if you're going to be proud and haughty, if you refuse to humble yourself, if you're going to refuse to uncover your sin, not only will you suffer internally, but there will be many pains that will be afflicted on you from the outside. Many pains come to the wicked. That, and I think that's the natural consequence of sinful, prideful living. Right? That that's what he's talking about there. If you want to live that life, just know that you're in for a rough ride. Many pains come to the wicked. But in contrast, the one who trusts in the Lord, the one who humbles himself, uncovers his sin before the Lord, he will have faithful love surrounding him. Faithful love. That's that technical term for God's commitment to keep his covenant promises despite our failures. It's a term that talks about God's gracious love and his insistence on, on showing his faithfulness to us even when we haven't earned it or deserve it. It's such a beautiful term. But notice what David says. When you trust the Lord, his faithful love surrounds you. The picture there is one of protection. Uh, oh, who's got my back? Oh, God's faithful love. Somebody's coming at me from the left. Oh, God's faithful love. What's over here? God's faithful love. Everywhere you turn, when you've trusted in the Lord, you will find his faithful love. It doesn't mean you won't find difficult circumstances. But even in the midst of those hardships, what will you find? You'll find God's commitment to keep his promises. Just because he loves you. Just because he's that good. Verse 11, Therefore, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is one of those verses that if you pull it out of context, you miss the whole point of it, right? He says in verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. You know, sing, be happy, right? Rejoice in the provision that God has made for you. Why? Because your sin is forgiven. But notice what he says. Be glad in the Lord, rejoice. You, what does your Bible say? You what? You righteous ones. The righteous ones aren't people who don't have sin to confess. They don't exist. The righteous ones are those who have humbled themselves and confessed their sin to the Lord. 
The righteous ones are the ones who have trusted in the Lord. Where does Paul get the idea that it's only by faith that you are declared righteous? One place he could have gotten it from is Psalm 32. Because the righteous ones here are not perfect people. They are people who have been declared righteous by virtue of their trust in the Lord. Confession is based on trust in God, and it results in joy. It results in blessing God's faithful love surrounding him. It results in being declared righteous. And so here, a psalm about the danger of, conf- of unconfessed sin is simultaneously a song about rejoicing in forgiveness. They go hand in hand. I know we want the one. I know everybody wants the joy and the peace, and everybody wants that side of it. Absolutely. I want to sleep well at night. I want to just have, you know, this joy in the Lord and this contentment. Like, I want that. But what we don't want is we don't want to actually go to the Lord and confess our sin. And David says, you want the one? You got to have the other. Secret sin destroys, but confessed sin brings us joy. You might be here wondering, yeah, but you don't really know what I've done. You don't know how long I've struggled. You don't know the, the specifics, Pastor Ryan, of my struggle. I don't. I don't necessarily. But I have friends. And my friends have testified to God's goodness. I had this one friend. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a sailor. This is 1700s, okay? And um, this guy, he was a sailor. He was not a good sailor. Uh, he was a bad sailor, participated in a mutiny, was actually thrown in prison for it, and rightly so. Scoundrel. Uh, didn't learn his lesson. Gets out of prison. And once again, gets back um, on the seas and is sailing. And, and despite his checkered past, works his way up, becomes the captain of his own ship. Now, in the 1700s, British trading vessel in the, 17, in the early 1700s, what are they trading? Well, they're trading human lives. And so this guy's participating in the slave trade, and he's the captain of a slave vessel. So he's, he's seeing this done one time. They hit this really bad storm, and, and he, he gets out at the captain. He was woken up. He puts his feet down in water. I'm not a sailor nor the son of a sailor. That's not good. Okay, when you, when you put your feet down on the ship and it's in water. Okay, this is not good, right? So he puts his feet down in the water. There's only, he, he says, I panicked. And he said, I reached in, and he said, somebody's grandma had left a Bible. You know, sent him a Bible or something, so he had it there. And so he pulls this Bible out. And he starts reading the word of God. And I'll tell you what, in that storm, God put his hand on him. And this guy, uh, a convicted criminal and a human slave trader, confessed his sin before the Lord. It took him three days before he was broken down and he got there, but he got there. The Lord mercifully brought him to this place where he could finally confess his sin. You know him. John Newton. You know him. He wrote the song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. And John Newton, where he's standing here today, he would tell you, if you're wondering whether or not God can forgive you, he would say, he forgave me. 
That's how much God loves us. That's how effective the gospel is. That's why, rather than hide our sin, we must confess it to the Lord. Because when we do, what will we find? We'll find joy. Would you pray with me? And we'll ask God to help us be people who confess our sin. Lord, we pause once again this morning in consideration of Psalm 32, and we again ask for your help. Lord, I pray for those who may be here who have unconfessed sin in their lives, that they have not uncovered in your sight, though you know it all, they haven't. And Lord, they haven't made right with others. And Lord, I pray and ask that you would convict us of that sin. Lord, I pray that you would mercifully put your heavy hand on us. Bring us to a place where we are convinced of your goodness. Lord, convince us to trust you. Lord, help us to look to the cross where we see the price paid for the removal of our debt, for the covering of our sin. And Lord, help us to see the empty tomb where the victory was won over death and over sin. Lord, give us confidence to come before you, not to fear judgment or to fear consequences, but Lord, to recognize that you are our hiding place. Lord, help us to see that only by faith in you are we righteous. And therefore, there's no reason for us to hide our sin from you, as if we could. Lord, help us to be people who aren't proud or arrogant, who are quick to confess when we sin. Lord, may we comfort one another, as inevitably we will need to confess to one another. We pray that you would help us to be gracious with one another, to have a posture of mercy and love and kindness as we confess our struggles and our failings. But Lord, ultimately, may our confession of sin not be just an act of piety, but may it be an act of worship. We don't confess because we need to earn your favor, but Lord, we confess because we already have it in Christ. We thank you for this beautiful expression of the gospel in Psalm 32. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to be people who are truly blessed, who are joyful because we know we are forgiven. And we're forgiven because we have confessed our sin and trusted in you. Lord, we thank you for the, the good news of the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.